spooky season is here. And you know, I would never disappoint you. So let's kick it off with a bang. In this episode, we are going to dive into the story of Madame Delphine Lalaurie and connect her house of horrors to some other very strange happenings coming out of New Orleans. We will be exposing the elite class for who they really are, as well as discussing some other celebrities who may be tied into the story of Madame Delphine Lalaurie. So, this one is really cool. I hope you love it. And happy Halloween. Let's get to it. It's that time. It's spooky season. And uh, we are going to start out with a bang. Now, some of you will be familiar with the topic today. And some of you maybe not so much. But we are talking about Madame Delphine LaLaurie. She was depicted in American Horror Story season Coven, played by Kathy Bates. And I want to give you the facts. And most of the time, fact is stranger than fiction. I think we all can agree on that. So, not only are we going to talk about Madame LaLaurie, but I would like to show you the connections I've made over the last couple weeks to the seriously sinister energy coming out of New Orleans. What I found is that New Orleans is a literal hub of darkness, and nothing is an accident as we've seen so many times. Certain places are chosen because they can siphon the dark energy off of them. To film... And other things, such as like Coven from American Horror Story, for example, of course they would choose a place like New Orleans so they can siphon off all this dark energy to put into the show. So, I want to jump right into it, and so if you would like, go get a glass of wine and snuggle in, maybe light some candles and set the mood, but if you're at work... Just use your imagination. So now let's begin. Madame LaLaurie was born as Marie Delphine McCarthy on March 19, 1787 in New Orleans, Louisiana. And her family came from a wealthy background, including military and government officials, 
planters, merchants, and landowners, and she died December 7th, 1849 in Paris, France. Now, before we continue, I just want to say New Orleans is such a stupid word because some people say New Orleans, Nolens, New Orleans, and so you might hear all three of those throughout the episode because I don't think anyone's ever came to the consensus of what the the name is. Like, I'm kind of partial to either New Orleans or Nolens, so let's stick with those at least. And moving on, I Google imaged pictures of Madame Delphine Lollerie, and basically I just wanted to describe for you this woman. She has a pinched face and almost kind of has that wicked Witch of the Westy kind of look. Not, I'm not going to say she's just a knockout or anything, but what I find funny is that she did have three husbands. So she's not uh, Marilyn Monroe or anything, but she must have been throwing that thing back. That's all I can say. So let's talk a little bit about what Delphine was like before turning her mansion into a literal house of horrors. So she was born, like I said, in New Orleans, March 19th, 1787, to an affluent white Creole family. And a generation before she was born, her family had moved from Ireland to, at the time, Spanish-controlled Louisiana. She married three times and had five children. I did not find anything suggesting that Delphine murdered her husbands, but now that we know what we know about her, I wouldn't consider it outside the realm of possibility that she gave them the old slick Black Widow special, you know, like the scallywag that she is. But since we can't confirm that... Let's proceed. Delphine had five children and two baby daddies and supposedly attended to her children lovingly. But of course, this was just all an act. Now, her first husband was a Spaniard by the name of Don Ramon de Lopez, and he was a high-ranking Spanish officer. And he and Delphine had one child together, a daughter, before his untimely death in Havana, Cuba. And then four years later, after Don Ramon's death, Delphine will marry a Frenchman named Jacques, I want to say, Jean Blanc. And Blanc was a banker, lawyer, and legislator, and was almost as affluent in the community as Delphine's family. And together, they had four children, three daughters, and one son. But as fate would have it, Jean Blanc turns up the fuck dead. And Delphine will go on to marry her third and final husband, who was a young doctor by the name of Leonard Lewis, Nicholas Lalori. And it is said that he was not often present in LaLaurie's day-to-day life and mostly left Delphine to her own devices. 
literally in this case. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, how does that old saying go? Like idle hands are the devil's workshop or something like that. I mean, this is an extreme case of that. So in 1831, Delphine and her doctor husband, number three, purchased a three-story mansion on 1140 Royal Street in the French Quarter. And as many society women did at the time, Delphine kept slaves. And oddly enough, I found accounts stating how most of the city was shocked at the kindness Madame Wallery displayed to her slaves while in public. Gag! Uh, I mean, of course she was. These are the fucking fruit loops you have to watch out for because someone like this will smile in your face as they stab you repeatedly. So, I mean, take Ted Bundy, for instance. Everyone loved him. Could not believe that he would hurt anyone. Body count over 300. <laughs> but let's continue. So eventually people got hip to her shit and began to notice that the politeness was all just an act. So the rumors that began to circulate were that Madame Delphine kept her 70-year-old cook chained to the stove starving. And she kept a select few other slaves secret for her doctor husband to practice Haitian voodoo medicine on. And there were also reports that her cruelty extended to her children, who she would punish and whip if they even tried to help the slaves in any way. And while I was doing research, it did say that there are some reports on record of these accusations being true. And here are some of the details that have stood the test of time of these heinous crimes she committed. First, a group of locals were the first to discover the slaves in the attic. Second, the slaves had clearly been tortured and were in various states of dismemberment. And reports from eyewitnesses claim that there were at least seven slaves they saw that were beaten, bruised, and bloodied within an inch of their life. Their eyes gouged out, their skin flayed, and their mouths filled with excrement and then sewn shut. There is a special place in hell for this lady, folks. But, so it wasn't until one of Delphine's slaves fell to her death that the Lollerie Mansion was investigated. And during the investigation, all of the slaves were set free. But just like a grade A psychopath, something straight out of a horror movie, Delphine got her family members to buy back each and every one of her previous slaves, forcing them to return to the horror they briefly escaped. Ooh, can you imagine? Stephen King couldn't come up with something like that in his wildest, wettest dream. Now, one particularly disturbing report claimed that there was a woman whose bones had been broken and reset so many times that she resembled a crab. And that another woman 
was wrapped in human intestines. The witnesses also claimed that there were people with holes in their skulls, with wooden spoons near them that would be used to stir the brains. Ugh. Jeffrey Dahmer couldn't hold a candle to this lady. So there were also many claims that there were dead bodies in the attic and their corpses were mutilated beyond recognition and every single one of their organs were taken out of their bodies. So she literally flayed them like a fish. Absolutely demented, okay? So some say that there were just a handful of bodies, and some say that there were over a hundred victims. Either way, it cemented Madame Delphine Lalaurie's reputation as one of the most brutal women in history. So after the Lalauries fled Nolens, neighbors claimed to hear screams and groans of agony coming from the abandoned house. They also claimed to see apparitions of slaves in the yard and balcony. And in 1837, the mansion was purchased by a man who only lived there for three months. He claimed he could never sleep there because he was plagued by strange sounds of groans and screams of people who obviously were not there. So he attempted to rent the rooms out to people and, of course, none of the tenants could live there for very long either. Most could only take it for a few days before they left and the mansion was left abandoned. So... This beautiful home still sits on the corner of Royal Street, and it is still one of the most sought-after locations in New Orleans. And to this day, no one after Madame Delphine Lalaurie has been able to live longer than five years in the mansion. It is considered to be one of the most haunted locations in the U.S. Some say they even found bodies buried on the grounds of the estate and under the fucking floorboards in a makeshift graveyard that Madame Lalaurie had left. Can you imagine being the lucky motherfucker to discover the makeshift graveyard under your floorboards? Oh my god. But at least we can agree, Delphine Lollery was a fucking vile woman who, unfortunately, was not ever truly punished for the disgusting cruelty she committed on the human beings she forced into slavery. So, now, where is the final resting place for Delphine Lollery? Well, I got to looking into it and... It sent me into a spiraling vortex that is going to blow your minds. So, let's start with this article I found, which says, As strange as it may seem, one of the most common tourist attractions in New Orleans are the city's cemeteries. And Mark Twain once made reference to them as the cities of the dead. And the nickname has stuck for over a hundred years. 
the cemeteries of New Orleans are not like those commonly found elsewhere in the United States. And what sets them apart and makes them different is for one, they are not dug six feet underground. Thanks to New Orleans high water table, the below ground graves were discarded by early colonists after they realized that more often than not, the coffins popped back up after heavy rain showers. Uh, yeah, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see my loved one's casket bobbing for apples out in the middle of the cemetery after a rainstorm. So that is completely understandable why they would have above ground vaults. But the most famous cemetery is called the St. Louis Cemetery. And there is a St. Louis Cemetery number one and number two. It's located on the cusp of the French Quarter on Basin Street. And St. Louis Cemetery number one claims the most famous voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, among other famous names interred within. So other famous names would be the pirate Bethlehemy Lafon, and of course the remains of Madame Delphine Lalaurie. Now, Looking into the cemetery tangented me into like six different other things, and I'm going to make this make sense here in a minute, but I got to thinking, and we will come back to the cemetery here in just a minute after we go full circle and blow your mind. So, I got to thinking, if someone, or who may own the LaLaurie Mansion today. Because it's like the log cabin story with Laurel Canyon. The log cabin Frank Zappa lived in, where he entertained all those people, including Charlie Manson, was the dark hub in the center of Laurel Canyon. And as it turns out, Lady Gaga owns it. Another example of this would be Britney Spears or... Maybe it was Christina Aguilera, one of them, uh, owning the Aleister Crowley Boliskine estate off the shores of Scotland's Loch Ness. Now, there is a repeating pattern of these very horrific dark places being suspiciously owned by celebrities or like music artists, whatever, what have you. And it's like, why in the world? Would you want to own something like that? And I'm researching it, and it says, As of 2021, the LaLaurie Mansion is owned by energy trader Michael Whalen, who bought the house in 2010 and moved in in 2013. The house was formerly owned by Regions Financial Corporation, which bought over the property from actor Nicholas Cage during a foreclosure auction in 2009. So here we go. <laughs> and buckle up because it is going to be a bumpy ride. So following its sordid past, the Lollery Mansion, as I had mentioned, was briefly turned into apartments. 
And like I said, there was a lot of ghost stuff going on. The horrors didn't stop. The residents were claiming the place was haunted and that they could hear moaning and groaning, cries, screams, footsteps throughout the house, and so on. But what I later find is that one day the landlord was found brutally murdered in his room and during investigations several witnesses claimed that the landlord had stated he was being haunted by what he describes as a demon. And the Lollery Mansion became known as the haunted house on Royal Street where the tormented souls continue to haunt the house. Now, how in the world is it that this landlord turns up brutally murdered? This is a whole new level of ghost stories for me, and it may be outside of my pay rate. Pay grade. Whatever. Uh, so, let's just say this. God, please protect me. Put up the spiritual hedge of me talking about this freaking dark shit. So, amen. Now, why does Nicolas Cage own the Lollery Mansion? Well, according to my research, it says that Nicolas Cage was fascinated by the mansion's ghostly past, so much so that he bought it. So, yes, Nicolas Cage did own the Lollery Mansion, and according to this website I found, Nicolas Cage only spent one night in the house because he could hear all types of ghostly sounds and never went back there. I'm not sure if that's true, but let's look into Mr. Cage a little bit more. So, there is a theory that Mr. Nicolas Cage himself is an immortal vampire. Now, before you start laughing, we have heard from Ryan Dean in the Princess Diana episode that the royal family believes themselves descendant of this French Merovingian bloodline, and Charles in particular is distantly related to the first vampire, Dracul. Vlad the Impaler, and he really believes he is descendant from the son of the devil, or Dracula. And they are also represented by the dragon. So, could it be that vampires are real? All descendant from the first one, the first vampire, Dracula. I mean, there's so many movies and so many questionable ties back to this notion. We're talking bloodline descendants. I mean, Elizabeth Bathory was also a part of this and probably a vampire. And speaking of Elizabeth Bathory, let's talk about that for a second. If you were a young woman living in Hungary in the 16th century, you wanted to stay the hell away from the castle of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. So, for 24 years, the Countess amused herself by torturing and killing young girls. 
She started with girls from peasant families who came to work as servants. When the peasants wised up and began hiding their daughters, she moved up the social scale, luring daughters of the local gentry by offering them etiquette lessons. She bathed in the blood of virgins to keep herself youthful, and the rest of her horrific crimes were chronicled in gory detail at her trial. She well deserves her nickname, the Blood Countess. Elizabeth Bathory was convicted of 80 murders, although... A legendary diary entry brought the total closer to 650, and LaLaurie's crimes were also compared to those of the Blood Countess, so much so that she's often called the American Elizabeth Bathory. I believe this obsession with blood came from being a vampire. And I know what you're thinking. The word vampire itself sounds fucking goofy because they've made movies like Twilight and fucking True Blood. And it's like, oh, that's not real. But is it? Because it's everywhere and it's referenced in a million movies. And I think a lot of vamps, if they're real might have actually migrated to or came from New Orleans because New Orleans is actually the filming location of the following movies, which includes, but is certainly not limited to. First, The Skeleton Key, which is about a good-natured nurse living in New Orleans, quits her job at a hospice facility to work for this chick named Violet Devereaux, an elderly woman whose husband is in poor health following a stroke. And when this good-natured hospice nurse begins to explore the couple's rundown bayou mansion, she discovers strange artifacts and learns the house has a mysterious past. I'm telling you, these movies are all... Sinister. So next we have Oblivion, filmed of course in New Orleans. And it's about the future in the year 2077. Tom Cruise works as a security repairman on Earth, which was left empty and devastated after a war with aliens. And he thinks that he's working to try to protect Earth, but really the aliens are just siphoning off all the energy from Earth. And he has like this, of course, if you've seen the movie, you know, he has like this come to Jesus moment and he remembers all of this shit and it triggers a chain of events that culminates in Tom Cruise nearly single-handedly battling to save mankind. So next filmed in New Orleans is Django. Quentin Tarantino movie. If you haven't seen it, you definitely need to. So Django is two years before the Civil War and Jamie Foxx is the main character, finds himself um, accompanied by this German bounty hunter named Dr. King Schultz and they go on a mission to capture these vicious murderers to claim the bounties And together they hunt all of the South's most wanted criminals. And 
finally they end up at the most infamous plantation of Calvin Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, where Jamie Foxx's long-lost wife is still a slave, and they, you know, concoct this coup to get her back. So, if you haven't watched Django, I'll just tell you, it gives you a really good sense of what these um, elite class people were like, who were these plantation owners, and it is absolutely healing to the bone to watch and um it's one of those movies that i say um i heard i think it was graham from grimerica he said i'm not calling them the elites anymore i want to come up with a new name for them well how about the vampire class fucking vamps how about that because that's what they are so to prove my point this next movie filmed in new orleans is abraham lincoln vampire hunter not only is it filmed in new orleans but it's set in new orleans and it basically is the story of while still a boy abraham lincoln loses his mother to a vampire bite and he vows revenge but fails in the attempt narrowly escaping with his life and he is rescued by this dude by the name of henry who is a charismatic vampire hunter who instructs Abe in the fine art of dispatching bloodsuckers. So Abraham Lincoln continues his fight against the undead well into adulthood and his presidency. And finally, they make a big stand at the end during the Civil War battle scene. And basically, this movie is about how vamps um, are taking over New Orleans and it almost alludes to the fact that they've always been in New Orleans and that they're the ones pulling the strings behind everything and they're the reason there's slavery because the vamps basically concocted this plan where they get free labor and food and they eat their slaves and they work their slaves I mean it this could really be real you guys I'm not fucking joking so next movie filmed in New Orleans was interview with a vampire and what is it about if you haven't seen it now is the time but it is about an 18th century lord by the name of lewis who is now a bicentennial vampire telling his story to a biographer so lewis was suicidal after the death of his family and he meets lestat who is Tom Cruise. Yet again, we have another Tom Cruise movie in New Orleans. And Lestat is a vampire who persuades him to choose immortality over death and become his companion. It also is really creepy about what they do with Kirsten Dunst, or Dernst, or however you say her last name, alluding to the fact that she's a woman in a child's body and she's all sexual. Yeah really nice so this next movie you guys you're going to shit an entire golden brick when i give you the name of this movie because it's too fucking crazy the next movie filmed in new orleans is easy rider 1969 the same Easy Rider we talked about in 
not only Occult Floral Canyon Part 1, but also in Part 2 featuring Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. Yeah, the same one. The same one directed by Jeremy Kay, who was a member of the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis, who was involved in that little boy being locked outside in a 6 by 6 wooden box being tortured to death. The very same Easy Rider was filmed in New Orleans. And it's a fucking movie about gay guys being bikers. And like their weird experience in New Orleans. And it's like, you guys, I never really realized how every intricate little piece of this leads to another episode that I've previously done. And I'm so happy to be taking this journey with you guys. Now, Easy Rider was like the banana split. But now we need to put the cherry on top. So I also want to mention the movie Stay Alive. Which is one of my all-time favorite Halloween movies. I watch it every year. It's actually a B-movie. I didn't know that. When I watched it the first time, I never got the slightest hint that it was a B-movie. I thought it was really awesome. And then I get online and it's got like two stars. Fuck all that nonsense. Those are some scallywags leaving fucking two-star reviews on that shit. It was awesome. It also includes everything that we're talking about right now. If you haven't seen it, please do me a solid and go watch fucking Stay Alive. So Stay Alive is a 2006 American supernatural horror film. And get this shit. Also, Disney's only horror film to date. Boom! I didn't even fucking know that this whole time. I've watched it for years. So it's about... These teenagers who decide to pass idle time by playing an online game that has a horror theme. But the action taking place on the screen becomes a terrifying reality when they realize that each time a character dies during the game, they die in real life. And the first victim in the movie to die is a kid by the name of Loomis Crowley. And he also is, uh, oh my god, the first scene in that movie has got, like, pig masks and, like, it looks like sex magic to me. Um, and then we get Elizabeth Bathory and they've got to read, like, this entry from her journal to provoke her spirit or invoke her spirit, whatever. I mean, you guys, it mentions the, uh, malice malefactum or whatever it's called the witch's hammer book i mean it's really dark but how they spin it and why it's so fucking crazy is not only was it filmed in new orleans not only is it a disney movie not only does it have a crowley and sex magic reference they turn the story of elizabeth bathory into a plot that includes all of her heinous crimes taking place at a plantation in New Orleans and that she was a fucking vamp. So you guys hear me out. Put aside all the goofy shit we know about vamps and think of it like this. 
they've made it goofy for a reason to dissuade you from thinking any of this actually exists. I am actually, I've convinced myself that this is all real. So if you ever ask me in the future, I'm referring to them as vamps. Now, some honorable mentions would be the movie JFK, Deepwater Horizon, American Horror Story Seasons 1 through 3, Deja Vu, Vampire Bats, Dracula 2000, and of course True Blood was all filmed in New Orleans. And speaking of True Blood, I mentioned it a couple times but forgot to say, it's about vamps in New Orleans. Surprise! I mean, it's all leading back to the same thing. Nothing suspicious here. But I also find it unusual, as I'm looking into this vampire stuff, that an unusual discovery is found at the St. Louis Cemetery. The very same St. Louis Cemetery that has Marie Laveau, the pirate Bethlehemie Lafon, and Delphine Lalaurie. So the cemetery also has a tomb ready and waiting for Nicolas Cage. And he has quite a unique looking tomb. It's all white and in the shape of a pyramid. Very reminiscent of how the Great Pyramid of Giza has been described with the white limestone casing stones when it was new. I get the heebie-jeebies looking at this thing. And in the center of Nicolas Cage's tomb, it reads, Omina ab uno, which is Latin for everything from one. Which could refer to Kether on the Tree of Life, among other things. For me, I would say something such as the first vampire, right? And then returning back to New Orleans to complete the cycle. So, there is no name on the pyramid yet. But we know it is meant for Nicolas Cage and what a perfect situation. If we're talking in terms of vampirism, I mean, I know a lot of people buy grave plots before they're dead. But think about it. All they have to do is slap Nick Cage on the front of that fucking bad boy and no one would ever know he wasn't in there. And the cemetery itself is such a suspicious choice. Why would he buy a tomb in the vamp town, in the same cemetery as Lalaurie and all these other characters, and have everything from one written in Latin on his tomb. Nobody is doing this, you guys. Like, no one. This is weird. They're all a bunch of freaks. And again, there are all these stories that he's a vampire. It's giving me the creeps. So, Let's not forget the picture that's been floating around of Nicolas Cage doppelganger. The faces are eerily similar. If you haven't seen it yet, Google it and come back to me. So some people have suggested 
that maybe Nicolas Cage is a time traveler. Oh, okay. So you'll believe in time travel, but not vamps. Get a grip, people. So let's talk about some of Nicolas Cage's movies. We've got Looking Glass, Running with the Devil, Left Behind, Pay the Ghost, Between Worlds, Knowing, which is a movie about predicting the destruction of the world, also involves extraterrestrials, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Lord of War, Next, which is about seeing into the future, National Treasure, enough said right there, Wicker Man, Ghost Rider, The Family Man, Time Travel, Peggy Sue Got Married, Time Travel, Face Off, Vampire's Kiss, Snake Eyes, Raising Arizona, about abducting children, Season of the Witch, about fucking vamps, Frozen Ground, about fucking sadistic serial killers, and also features John Cusack, and the World Trade Center. So, now, either he just really likes, uh, chilling movies, or he's a vamp. So, you guys better give me my fucking props on this next one. And I want you to think of my damn face when you go to see this movie next year. The next movie has a release date set for April the 14th of 2023. The movie is entitled Renfield. And Renfield is an upcoming American dark fantasy horror comedy about a character named Renfield who is a henchman to Count Dracula who decides to leave his line of work after falling in love. And who plays Dracula? Nicholas Cage! <laughs> yes! Yes, 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 you guys! And now, let's remember what Dracula means. Son of the devil. So, if I haven't blown your minds enough yet, let's continue on the research pertaining to the cemetery. The St. Louis Cemetery. And now, names have power. So, I begin to think there's a reason, as we have discussed before, the St. Louis Arch is named this. So, of course, as we mentioned in Occult Laurel Canyon Part 2, the St. Louis Arch is a gateway to realms times, spaces, and dimensions beyond the confines of our reality. And every once in a while, the gateway opens, spilling forth demonic energy and creatures, monsters, la-ti-da, and this is also the name of this cemetery. So what do we know about this name and why would it be used? Now, aside from the fact that the French established Nolens and most of Louisiana, they, of course, named a lot of stuff after French people. And, of course, Louis IX of France is French, <laughs> of course. But I got to looking into a little bit about Louis IX of France. 
and he was born April 25th, 1214 in France and died August 25th, 1270 in Tunisia. And I don't know if you remember this from Occult Laurel Canyon Part 2, but here we get another August date. You know who else died in August, by the way? And was born in August? Elizabeth Bathory. And shout out to New York Patriot for hooking me up on the August connection. So August represents Leo, and Leo is fire, and fire can represent spirit as well. So Leo is kind of showing the spirit breaking out of the flesh. As seen in Crowley's Baphomet, snakes are spirit in the flesh, and lion is spirit out of the flesh. So very interesting connection there. So diving in back into um, St. Louis the Ninth of France, I find that his admirers through the centuries have regarded Louis the Ninth as the ideal Christian ruler and his skills as a knight and his engaging manner with the public made him super popular, although his contemporaries occasionally rebuked him as a monk king. And Lewis was a devout Christian and enforced strict Catholic orthodoxy. He passed severe laws punishing blasphemy and targeted France Jews and even burned the Talmud. And he is the only canonized king of France. So I do find it funny that he was considered this super-duperty Christian, spreading the Catholic orthodoxy, burning the Talmud, and hating Jews, which sounds a little Hitlery to me. But let's think about this for a second. These royal bloodlines think that not only have they descended from this Merovingian bloodline, but that they are descendants from these extraterrestrial rulers of Egypt. These pharaohs, such as Akhenaten and his sister Mary Totten, who had these massive elongated skulls, which we can see plainly. They had elongated skulls, they were extraterrestrials, and they ruled over Egypt. So these bloodlines trace straight back to Rome and the Catholic Church. Now, what it said is that in the early days, to disguise their elongated skulls, the popes wore the miter hats, those tall fucking hats, to disguise their elongated skulls. And if you want to go lizard people, you can. Maybe Akhenaten was a lizard person and his bloodline descended into Rome, descended into the Catholic Church. So it wouldn't surprise me that they would have patted St. Louis the Ninth of France on the back for being such a strict Catholic ruler and basically expanding the empire, right? Which led to him being canonized. So... I don't think anything is on accident. I think names have power and they're 
named after St. Louis because of his sordid past. So, going a little bit further into the future, in the mid-1800s, the highest concentration of millionaires in America could be found between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Their wealth came largely from sugarcane plantations, which depended on the labor of thousands of enslaved African Americans. In the 1850s alone, Louisiana plantations produced an estimated 450 million pounds of sugar per year, worth more than 20 million annually. So that in itself, like I said, if these are vamps all congregating in New Orleans, these plantation families with their slaves, it reeks of this elite bullshit to me. But let's continue. Have there been any other catastrophes in New Orleans worth mentioning? And of course, we have to talk about Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> so here we go. Now, if there's a standard Katrina narrative, it would go something like this. The storm was as devastating as it was because of real-time official incompetence, especially by the George W. Bush administration. And its victims were poor African Americans, particularly in the Lower Ninth Ward. And today, thanks to the fiery spirit of the community, the city has vibrantly bounced back to life. Now, was this an act of God? Was this a natural disaster? Well, what I hope to show the listeners tonight is that Katrina may not have begun when the levees broke. And what could have prevented the catastrophe? So for that, we have to go back into the past. So a combination of civic boosterism and excessive faith in engineered water control systems led New Orleans to keep reclaiming fucking swampland for housing building canal systems for commercial ship traffic and dredging spillways that were supposed to draw floodwater away from the city when the need arose. All of these systems failed during Katrina. A severe hurricane, by the way, in 1915 caused relatively little damage and actually led to enhancing New Orleans hubris, which was a fucking mistake. Because in 1965, Hurricane Betsy caused massive sustained flooding and 260,000 people had to leave their homes. And so this Hurricane Betsy coincided with the high watermark of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And Johnson immediately came to New Orleans to show his concern. And Louisiana's leading politicians, which at the time were Democrats, demanded and mostly got generous federal emergency aid. But 
it's always easier to address a pressing crisis than it is to prevent the next one. So the pattern of continued development without adequate flood protection continued. And an ambitious long-term hurricane protection plan passed by Congress and signed into law by Johnson was never completed. And as I have told you before, if you want to know more about Lyndon Johnson, you can go listen to Murdered by Suicide, one of my first episodes I did. Lyndon Johnson, as a side job, was, of course, a notorious mass murderer. So this involvement, as well as with the skull and bones Mr. Bush, does not surprise me whatsoever. This seems like it was planned. So, curiously enough, for a decade after Katrina, New Orleans was a whiter city than it had been before. So, obviously, this seems like a plan. And since Katrina, the idea that breaches in the flood walls were not accidental has become common in the Black community. And it's even said that Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, among other public figures, claimed that the levees were dynamited to divert waters away from wealthy white areas. So this theory reached a United States House of Representatives committee who investigated Katrina, and then a New Orleans community activist also made this claim that the levees were dynamited to divert waters away from wealthy white areas. So I'm still looking into this and I find this guy and it turns out that two years after Katrina, this dude by the name of Chris Sanford, who has a military background and is a mixed martial artist, made some interesting statements about Katrina. So he says, right after Katrina, he was hired by a Blackwater-esque firm for product retention purposes. And Sanford and his colleagues weren't ragtag suburban warriors with sidearms, but a well-equipped and organized bunch dispatched to defend real estate and large hotels and whatever else people serious enough to have hired them wanted protected. So what he said is that he had seen banks that had been looted, not just cash drawers yanked open, but also vaults broken into using what could have only been industrial equipment like forklifts and cutting torches and equipment unlikely to be used by desperate people. So Sanford saw the aftermath in bank after bank after bank, and it's estimated that they got to 125 billion missing. <laughs> so if I mean this this is crazy as shit. Now let's end it on a bang as we started on a bang. Now, I'm looking into what other connections I can make to New Orleans, and I find this dude named Clay Shaw. Now, what's interesting about Clay Shaw? Well, Clay Laverne Shaw was an American businessman and military officer from New Orleans, Louisiana. 
in Shaw, is best known for being the only person brought to trial for involvement in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Shaw was acquitted in 1969, less than one hour after jury deliberation. And most quote-unquote conspiracy theories continue to speculate on his possible involvement. Now, fuck all that bullshit. He was probably definitely involved in it, and here's why. So, I mentioned this in literally like my second or third episode I ever did about Lee Harvey Oswald, who was also living in New Orleans. So, here's the connection. And I probably need to redo that episode because I've grown so much, but here it is. Lee Harvey Oswald was working at this Riley's Coffee Company in New Orleans right before he assassinated, supposedly, John F. Kennedy. So, Jim Garrison conducts this investigation into Lee Harvey Oswald, and he ends up in New Orleans. And he is familiar with the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald worked at this Riley's Coffee Company. So, he goes to the coffee company and he wants to interview like co-workers and ask about the situation. And what he finds is that not only does no one know what the fuck he's talking about, no one knows about Lee Harvey Oswald, every single employee that worked there at the same time as Lee Harvey Oswald was no longer employed there. And it actually was just a year after the assassination and Lee Harvey Oswald working there that Jim Garrison went back to conduct this investigation. So how many places do you know that actually fire every single employee they've ever had and replace them all with brand new ones within a year? That's fucking crazy. So he's looking into it a little bit further and he finds that Every single employee working with Lee Harvey Oswald at Riley's Coffee Company were now under the employ of NASA. (laughs) Oh, you guys. So how do you go from being a coffee company employee to becoming under the employ of NASA? So again... There's something weird coming up out of New Orleans. Now, did I find anything else? Yes, I did. New Orleans leads the nation in murders to this day. So a study conducted in early 2022 states New Orleans is leading the nation in murders murders. So not only is it still to this day leading the nation in murders, think about all the plantations and the dead bodies piling up from that. The torture, the dismemberment, lawlery, all this stuff, and is still to this day leading the nation in murder. I can see why they want to film so many movies out there. It's the perfect uh, little playground for them. And you know what else I find funny is that the religion of the Louisiana area is called Louisiana Voodoo. And Louisiana Voodoo is also known as New Orleans Voodoo. And is basically this 
African disparatic religion, which originated in Louisiana and is now all over the southern United States. And it arose through a process of mixing the traditional religions of West Africa, the Roman Catholic form of Christianity, and Haitian voodoo. So you guys tell me that this is all an accident. There's nothing going on here. What I hope to have done in this episode, first is to blow your minds. Second, give me my props when Renfield comes out. Third, let's now expose this vampire class. From this day forth, we shall refer to these elite quote-unquote people, these bloodline descendants, these freakazoids, these weirdos, scallywags, as the vampire class, because that is exactly what they are. So please let me know what you think of this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and happy Halloween. <laughs>